Well, good morning, folks. It's, it's lovely to be back, and thank you so much for the real privilege it is to open God's Word. I hope that you've been able to read on in the book of James, because uh, it's God's Word to our heart today, and it's full of really practical insight and wisdom that I think is exceedingly relevant to us. And I hope that you'll find this morning's study to be just that. Let me read to you just a few verses from verse, um, perhaps, let me see, from verse 13, just for the context, because we're only really going to look at one, maybe two verses this morning, but the context is helpful. When, verse 13 of chapter 1, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And we pray that God will bless his word to our hearts and give us a real understanding of of just how it might apply to us today. Uh, Sometimes I read the word of God and I think, good gracious, what is it saying? And I find it hard to work it out. But this is one of those passages that is so clear that uh, there's no confusion about it at all. Now in our last visit, we reminded ourselves that God is good, he's unchanging, he'll never be any better than he is because he's always the same, he's, he's good. And I just love those, uh, little, that little verse in verse 18, which says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And I just really love that expression, he chose to give us birth. I have a twin brother. He's a really nice guy, but he doesn't know Jesus. And sometimes I sit there and think, Lord, why me? And I don't have an answer. My heart is just overwhelmed by the wonder that God has, for reasons not only to himself, chosen me. Because we all put our trousers on one leg at a time. We're all the same. We're all awkward at times. And we're all sinful. But why? Why? I have no, I don't know. I don't know why he's chosen me, and I don't know why he's chosen you, but isn't it just wonderful that the Lord in his grace reaches out, and he meets us through his Holy Spirit, and he impacts us, and he changes us. And of course we know that it says in Ephesians chapter 2, for it is by great grace you have been saved. Uh, Through faith it is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And the truth is that none of us could ever do enough good works to merit any kind of favor from God. We're We're not made right with God because we have done some good stuff. We could never do enough. But when we have been saved, the Holy Spirit 
brings change to our lives and that change is evidenced by the way we live little verse in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 9 which is really helpful the writer says even though we speak like this dear friends we are confident of better things in your case things that accompany salvation now if you like there are visible evidences that we belong to Jesus when the spirit of God works in our lives the things that accompany salvation are visible now I, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about those things and what they might be I've thought a little bit about it and I've got, I've got it down to four but up there, you could look at it different ways I think the first thing is a love for the Lord Jesus because I don't think you can be a follower of Jesus unless you love him love for the Lord Jesus I think the second thing is a love for the, the Lord's word because the word is God's love letter to us many years ago I was going off to a pastor's conference with a, a pastor friend and uh, our wives had packed us a picnic lunch and we stopped to have our picnic lunch and I opened up my sandwich box and inside there was a little note from my wife now I'll tell you what I didn't do I didn't put the note to one side thinking, oh, well, I'll look at it this evening. No, I put the lunch to one side. I wanted to know what she was saying in this little love note. And my pastor friend was so jealous, he wanted to read it too. But I didn't let him because it was addressed to me. Well, this is God's love letter to us. So the first thing that accompanies salvation is a love for the Lord Jesus. The second is a love for the Lord's word. I think the third thing is a little challenging. It's a love for the Lord's people. And the authorized version talks about God's peculiar people. And I think some of us are pretty peculiar. But we've got to love them. We've got to love them. Because God loves us all the same. He has no favorites. And then the fourth thing, I think, is some kind of a concern for the lost if Jesus looked over Jerusalem and burst into tears, and the Greek says literally, it wasn't a tear that trickled down his cheeks. He howled because they didn't recognize the time of his coming to them. And if we love Jesus, I think that what makes him weep will make us weep. I think so. So those are the things, I think, that accompany salvation. And if we have been born again, if we really know Jesus, there will be evidence in our lives of new life. Now, James is really concerned that his reader, readers understand that behavior and belief go hand in hand. You see, belief, our beliefs, determine and dictate our behavior. And James really wants the people to understand that belief and behavior go together. I have a commentary on the book of James at home by a man called Spiros Zodhaetis. I'm sure I've pronounced it incorrectly. And the title of this commentary is The Behavior of Belief. Remember, there's 108 verses in this book. And how many commands are there? There's 54. I told you that at the beginning. So it's really practical. God is telling us how he wants to live. And James is challenging his readers to prove their salvation by living lives which are different. And he gets up close and personal. He says, my dear brothers. I'm just glad he doesn't say my brothers. He says, my dear brothers. My dear brothers. Take note of this. In other words, this is important. Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. 
So he talks about three areas here. And we're going to look at them just this morning. The first one he says is, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. He's talking about a readiness to listen or a willingness to listen. Now, Jesus addressed the whole area of communication in, in, in the scriptures very clearly and of listening. He says in Mark chapter 4 verse 24, consider carefully what you hear. In other words, just, you know, use your common sense. There's some stuff you don't need to hear, so avoid it. And then he says, uh, not only consider carefully what you hear, he says, consider carefully how you listen. Consider carefully how you listen. And and I think the repeated phrase is really interesting. Consider carefully. You see, I think the use of that expression, consider carefully, is calling us to pause and to ponder the question that James is asking. Are we quick to listen? So, how do we listen? Now, James's primary intention has to do with the sharing of truth. I remember one Sunday morning a number of years ago, after a service, I was down at the door pressing the flesh as normally did, and this guy comes to me and he says, I didn't get anything out of that. And I said, oh dear, that's a shame. And I said, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, um, did you through the week pray that the Lord would be involved in the preparation of this message? Did you pray that God would be merciful and come and speak? And what about this morning? Did you get up and ask God to prepare your own heart for whatever he might have to give you? And he looked at me and he said, uh, no. And I said, well the Jews, they had a whole day of preparation. So why why don't you just try next Sunday to have a little preparation. Pray for the preacher through the week. Pray for the preparation. And pray for your own heart. So the next Sunday morning, I went down to the door after the service. And this guy came at me like a rocket. And he said, that was fantastic. And I said, do you think so? And he said, it was great. And I said, well, you know, the truth is... It was probably pretty much the same as you got last week. And God willing, it'll probably be pretty much the same as you get next week. So what's the difference? And he looked at me. And he said, it's me, isn't it? And I said, yeah. Are we quick to listen? Are we quick to listen? Jesus longs for every Christian to have a hunger to engage with God in his word in order that we might get to know him better. And actually, it's a wonderful thing, because the more we get to know him, the more we shall want to get to know him. Because the more wonderful we shall discover him to be. And you remember what... There's three passages that give us concentrated teaching about Jesus in the New Testament. One is in Philippians 2 in Colossians and then in Hebrews and in Hebrews we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God the exact representation of his being well if he's the image of the invisible God it means we can't see God the Father but if Jesus is the image of God the Father then we need to look at him because he reveals the Father to us I'm just 
it was in the study the other, this week, and the, the Lord gave me, I think, a, a series of messages, well, at least an outline that I've got to that is ho- hopefully prepare about what, what do we learn about when you look at Jesus? We see his patience. He never gets upset or angry with his disciples for being stupid, does he? Never. He's the image of the indivisible God. That's like God the Father. He's moved to compassion. Wow, that's like God the Father. Jesus, the image of the invisible God. The more we get to know him, the more we shall want to get to know him. If you come to this church once on a Sunday, for 50 Sundays in the year, by my reckoning, you'll probably get about 25 hours preaching. Is that right? You know, because more or less you get half an hour. Sometimes you go over a bit. Sometimes you may go under a bit. Sometimes it might seem like an hour. But there you go. You get about 25 hours ministry a year. Now, let me ask you this. What do you do with it all? Does it impact your lives and make a difference? We read in Luke 12, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. So... If we have the privilege of listening a lot, what do we do with what we hear? So how do those words apply to us? How do we, how do we listen? Now if I was to ask you, do you ever sit there allowing your mind to wander, thinking, well, Nathan plays the drums. How many drums are there in that electric kit? One, two, three, four. Is there, is there five? And how many cymbals? One, two, three, four, five or maybe you've done that and you think well how many chairs have they got out this morning in the row how many are one, two, three, four, five do you ever do that in the middle of the message hands up if you've ever done that well I'm more honest than you guys yeah it's an honest guy over there that's great well we do that don't we but do you remember what Cornelius said to Peter in Acts 10 he said Cornelius was seeking to know the truth he said we're all here in the the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us we're here to listen and how often do we listen with the attitude of Samuel when he was a small boy the Lord came and stood there calling as at other times Samuel, Samuel then Samuel said speak for your servant is listening is that a great way to come to church Lord but you speak because your servant is listening and in my experience God tends to speak in a still small voice and if there's a lot of noise going on we find it difficult to hear now I want to say that this applies to other areas such as reading helpful Christian literature and listening to godly counsel and comment by other Christians we have to be quick to listen and more importantly we should be listening in our chosen times or our quiet times because God speaks and yet our quiet times are so often filled with the sound of our own voices because we we pray don't we instead of sometimes just listening I remember one morning I was convicted about that and I was just in my chosen time there and I stopped and I said Lord I'm always talking to you and telling you about the stuff that's going on in my life but I never ask you about you how are you today Lord I know that's a stupid question because he's always the same 
But I, I asked, how, and I found myself just weeping, tears. How are you, Lord? Because maybe I just become aware that I, I spent so much time talking and not enough time listening. We need to consider carefully how we listen, not only in our quiet times, but in church on Sundays. And you know that lovely hymn that we used to sing, we probably still do sometimes. Speak, Lord, in the stillness, while I wait on thee. Hushed my heart to listen in expectancy. Speak, O blessed Master, in this quiet hour. Let me see thy face, Lord, and feel thy touch of power. So James says to us, everyone needs to be quick to listen. How do we listen? How do we listen? There's a question, isn't it? Well, he he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he tells us that we need to be uh, slow to speak, quick to listen and slow to speak. Everyone should be a little bit reserved, perhaps a little bit slow to speak. Now, the unvarnished truth is that many of us have the tendency to speak just a little bit, maybe more than we perhaps ought to. I don't know if you've come across Benjamin Disraeli, but a former prime minister, but he said of one of his contemporaries that he was intoxicated with the exuberance of his own verbosity. Which is a wonderful way of saying he talks an awful lot. <laughs> he was consumed or intoxicated with the exuberance of his own verbosity. And I'm afraid that that's a disease that shows no sign of abating. And sometimes Christians suffer from that disease too. Maybe there have been times when you've opened your mouth to change your feet. Have you ever put your foot in your mouth? Yeah, well, I certainly have. But you know something extraordinary? I've never yet had to take something back that I didn't say. What about you? I've never had to take back something I didn't say. And doesn't it say in the Proverbs, where words are many, sin is not absence. But he who holds his tongue is wise. In other words, if we, if we hold our tongues, people are going to think, well, we're really wise. We might not be wise, but they'll think we're wise. Where words are many, sin is not absence. The rabbis used to have a saying that men have two ears and one tongue so we might listen twice as much as we speak. And they also said that the ears are always open, ever ready to receive instruction, but the tongue is surrounded with a double row of teeth to hedge it in and to keep it within proper bounds. Well, that might be uninspired, but there's a a deal of truth in it. God seems to take what we say really seriously. That's why we read in Matthew, I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment Not just for some of the careless words they say, but for every careless word they have spoken. I don't know how that makes you feel, but it makes me feel distinctly nervous. We should be quick to listen, but slow to speak, a little bit reserved. This is clearly an issue of some significance and importance. So let's just... Look at a couple of areas. Uh, Slow to speak about ourselves. Have you ever thought about the word sin and asked yourself, what's at the center of sin? 
it's a big eye, isn't it? A big eye in the center of sin. And the truth is there are some folks who are very self-focused. And they pepper their speech with I, me, mine, and myself. And you know the definition of a bore, don't you? A bore is somebody who speaks about themselves when I want to talk about myself. There are some folks who talk about themselves all the time. And what a contrast it is to God's word. Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. I find it really interesting that the word ambition appears eight times in the New Testament. And on six occasions, it's linked to the word selfish. So much of our ambition is selfish because we are self-focused. And we need to be beware of boasting. People who sing their own praises usually do so without accompaniment. And isn't that true? We've actually nothing to boast about. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin from which we need to be saved. And some people are tempted to boast about what they possess, maybe their car or their house or or their cashmere jumper or whatever it is. But doesn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast about it as though you did not? It's not appropriate for us to boast like that. And there are other folks, and and they're so keen to tell you uh, of all the important people that they've met, so they like to name drop. I met Graham through the week. But dropping names is really an unpleasant form of pride. And there are others who like to tell you uh, what they do. You know, I'm, I'm a pastor, you know. That actually just makes me a servant. And actually, I'm not really a pastor, actually, I'm retired. When I went to college, I, I met a guy who was uh, one of the leaders of Operation Mobilization. And he was having a conversation with me, and he said, Michael, I've known a lot of folks who've gone to Bible college. And they've emerged in ways that. I haven't been encouraged by. So when you graduate from college, just be very sure that you're humble before God and not arrogant before men. Humble before God and not arrogant before men. Maybe you've come across a self-important preacher. Oh, it's not a nice thing. Paul says, when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So everyone ought to be slow to speak, particularly about themselves. And then we need to be slow to speak about others. We've all met people who are driven to say something even when they've got nothing to say. Is that right? They have to say something even though they've got nothing to say. They have an opinion on everyone and everything. And they're always ready to give a definitive judgment on just about any issue while blithely ignoring what James says everyone should be slow to speak very few of us can claim exemption from the charge of saying things about others that have been unkind, unfair unloving or just untrue Uh, criticism 
can be so destructive and so painful. And we all face it at some stage. If you stand up and do anything for God, there will be others who will criticize you for it. But they criticize Jesus. So you you just have to cope with it, don't you? You say, well, Lord, is there any truth to this criticism? If there is, Lord, help me to, to grow and change. And if there isn't, Lord, it's not worth thinking about, so help me just to leave it to one side. Folks, forget that James said in chapter 3, my brothers, this should not be. This should not be. And what about gossip? Oh, dear gossip. You need to know that he who gossips to you will gossip about you. I had a great way of dealing with gossips. You ought to try it. It works a real treat. If somebody's starting to gossip to me, I used to put an arm around the shoulder, and then I would get a real good grip of the of the kind of the jumper, you know, so they couldn't get away, and I get a real good grip and I say, That's interesting you say that. Why don't we go and speak to that person and sort this out? Oh man, they try to get away and they never come back. And that's a good thing. Because he who gossips to you will gossip about you. And gossip has hurt so many people down through the years, hasn't it? Maybe you're one of them. It wouldn't surprise me if you are. The story is told of a a lady who after years of malicious tongue wagging was in a church and her pastor was preaching about uh, gossip and she became convicted and so she went to him and said look I really feel convicted what should I do and he said well if you want a clear conscience you've got to get one of your pillows at home that has all you know feathers in it and just open it out and go around and put a feather on the doorstep of everybody that you've gossiped about and she thought oh my word I'll have to use two pillows anyway she got the pillow she opened it up and she went around the town and she put a feather on the step of just about everybody that she'd gossiped which is everybody in the town and then she came back to the pastor and she had an empty pillowcase and she said well my conscience still isn't clear she says there's one more thing you've got to do and she said, what's that? He says, you need to go around and pick up all those feathers. So she goes around, because she can't find them, because they've all blown away. And finally she comes back and says, look, I can't find any of the feathers, they've all blown away. And he said, well, precisely. It's just the same way. It's easy for you to scatter words. But it's impossible to, to take them back. So what you have to do is you have to go to God. And you have to say, God, I'm sorry. And you have to bite your tongue the next time you're tempted to gossip. Because gossip is not good. And remember that we each one give an account for every careless word on the day of judgment. And Paul says, or James says to us, listen, everybody ought to be slow to speak. God has a particular loathing of anything that divides Christians, and gossip does just that. And almost certainly, even in a fellowship of this size, gossip will happen. 
Now do you remember when Jesus confronted Saul on the Damascus road? Do you remember what he said to him? Well, in Acts chapter 9, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And when Paul in later years recounted the event, he added an important detail in Acts 26. He says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus who you are persecuting. But who was Paul persecuting? Saul persecuting. He was going to Damascus to beat up the Christians, wasn't he? And Jesus said, it's me you're doing it to. And that just means that if, if I'm unkind to you, I'm being unkind to Jesus. And if I'm sharing a tidbit of gossip about somebody, I'm Hurting Jesus. It's serious. And those thoughts bring James's words into very sharp focus, don't they? Everybody should be slow to speak. Of course we have a solemn responsibility to share our faith and to talk about God's kindness and grace to a world desperately needing a saviour. But we also ought to be encouraging each other as we have opportunity to do so. But we need to do these things with the right understanding of what James is saying. So he says everybody should be quick to listen, a readiness or a willingness to listen. Everybody should be, should be slow to speak. And then he goes on and he says thirdly, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Slow, so it's quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry, a reluctance to be angry. It's not hard to see the link between anger and the use of the tongue. Somebody has said there's only one letter difference between the word anger and danger. Isn't that right? And it's worth noting that James doesn't say don't get angry. He's not saying don't get angry. Ephesians chapter 4 says, verse 26, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still, still angry. Now anger is, is, is very powerful. It grips us. And if we're not careful, it, it kind of gets out of control. You've heard of road rage. I don't know, maybe you've experienced road rage. But imagine getting so angry that you'd actually use your car to knock somebody off a bicycle or to bash into another car. But that's what happens. And when that happens, when anger takes control, it becomes sinful. It is, however, possible to become angry without sinning. It's called a righteous anger. You remember Jesus went into the temple. The outer court of the temple is the court of the Gentiles. And if you remember, it was there that the people were selling animals for sacrifice. And they were making a few bob on the side. You could only use the temple currency. So you brought your shekels in and you exchanged them for temple currency. Probably at a not very advantageous rate. And wherever you have animals, you, heave, you have all the stuff that animals leave behind them. It was a smelly place. 
But it was the house of God. And Jesus goes into the temple courts and he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves. And others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords. He took his belt of a whip out of cords. And he drove them all out of the temple. Both sheep and cattle he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market. Can you just imagine? Jesus was blazing with anger. And he got his belt and he made it a whip and he was lacking people with it. And he was overturning tables. But he was righteously angry. Because this was God's house. And they were abusing it. And he was not prepared to put up with it. And we know that Jesus never sinned. But we need to be careful about getting angry because the line between righteous anger and personal irritation is very fine. So it's wise to stop when we're tempted to get angry and to count to ten. To count to ten. Because that stops us giving a flash reaction and gives us a little moment of time in order to gain perspective perhaps to move from subjectivity into objectivity Lord how do I respond to this it's easy I often think of David when he was in King Saul's palace and you remember King Saul got the javelin and he threw it at him tried to pin him to the wall do you know Do you know the first thing David learned to do in Saul's palace? He learned how to duck. And he never once picked it up and threw it back. And yet the temptation is when somebody says stuff that they shouldn't maybe say to me, I'm tempted to pick it up and throw it back. It's good to stop and to count to ten. It puts a break on stuff. Jesus gives us a specific reason why we should... uh, we should be slow to become angry. In verse 20 he says Man, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Anger that comes from our sinful natures does not reflect the righteousness of God. Now listen to David's description of God. It's very beautiful. He says the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Isn't that lovely? How practical James is in his instruction. And what's interesting is that Peter in the garden of Gethsemane, he was exactly the opposite of what James is telling us to be. He was uh, slow to listen. He was quick to speak and quick to get angry. And he was so angry that he took a sword and he tried to chop the head off uh, Malchus the high priest's servant. At least I think he tried to chop the head off, but he only managed to get the ear. But I think he was going for the head, though the Bible doesn't tell us that. Many church fights are the results of short tempers and hasty words. There is a godly anger against sin, and if we love the Lord we must hate sin. But man's anger does not produce God's righteousness. In fact, anger is just the opposite of patience. The patience God wants to produce in our lives as we mature in Christ. Maybe you've heard the expression that temper is such a valuable thing, it's a shame to lose it. Don't want to lose it. You can't afford to lose it. The person who cannot get angry at sin does not have much strength to fight it. 
James warns us against getting angry at God's word because it reveals our sins to us. Like the man who broke the mirror because he looked in it and saw his own image. And he broke the mirror. So you don't take it out on the messenger. You listen to the message. An extraordinary thing is God's word is like the sun. It melts ice but hardens clay. And when God's word is applied to our hearts, it makes some of us glad and some of us mad. But there you have it. James says, be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. And be slow to get angry. If we were to listen to those words of advice, we would be happy people, wouldn't we? May the Lord help us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the very practical nature of the things that James has been saying to us. And and I guess, Lord, in all honesty, we all feel a little bit uncomfortable because we've all maybe not been as diligent about the way we listen as we could have been. There have been days when in a church service, instead of concentrating and trying to listen, we've gone on a mental hike, Lord. Maybe up to Loch Lomond or maybe we've thought about the shopping that we have to do for the week ahead or something like that. And perhaps we haven't listened as carefully as we ought to have done and there may be times when we have spoken hastily about ourselves or about other people in in ways that we're going to be ashamed of when we stand in front of you Uh, and maybe maybe just maybe oh lord there have been times when we've lost our tempers we're so sorry about that We we pray, Father, to say thank you, first of all, for teaching us what comes from your heart to ours through James. And we want to pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us, that we would put it into practice. And in putting it into practice, Lord, that we might be able to honor you in, in, in genuine ways that would bring a smile of pleasure to your face. So we commit one another to you. And we pray, Father, that the things that accompany salvation might be evident in our lives today. For Jesus' sake. Amen.